At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. So much of this message today is, is more on the serious side, and I think that's appropriate uh, in light of the, the activities and all the things that have been happening this particular week in our nation. So if you have your Bible, please make your way to 1 John chapter 2. If you would, and as you're turning there, let me just set up where we are in this series. It's week two of this series, Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again. Our cultural moment, this particular season of society has exposed, as I've been thinking about it, how people think about the idea of love. How many times has love been the stated motivation for violence in this past season? I mean, months, right? Not just this last week. How many times has love been the justification for hatred? How many times has love been the provocation for sin? Did you know it's possible to be what the world would call love, full of what the world would call love, and full of godlessness at the exact same time? That people can say, I am full of love, but yet also be full of godlessness at the same time. I've been reflecting upon that this week and thinking, how is that possible? It's possible by loving the wrong things, by loving the wrong way, by loving in the wrong order. And the phrase that came to my mind that that God kind of placed in my mind to consider and think about is that misapplied love is love misunderstood. Misapplied love is love misunderstood. And if we misunderstand love, then we misunderstand God because God is love. Think about it. Does godly love throw sticks and stones? That's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. Does godly love mock and belittle in conversation? Certainly, as we see all over social media, that's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. Does godly love look out for self-interests? No. Is godly love always tolerant? No. Should it only encourage and never challenge? No. That's love misapplied. That's love misunderstood. Now, there once lived a righteous man. He was loved by God. He loved his nation. He loved his mom. He loved his brother. He was loyal to his friends. He was full of faith. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't well-known. He wasn't wealthy. He was just a guy who was mentored by his dad and eventually took over the family business. He was working class, and he was a Christian, And one day, he was rejected. He wasn't treated well. He and his friends were persecuted for their faith because of Christ. So out of his love, what he thought, what he believed to be love for God and his allegiance to Jesus, he said, Lord, these people hate your truth. We need to retaliate. And Luke tells us in his gospel, chapter 9, 
that Jesus turned to the apostle John and rebuked him for wanting God's judgment to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans. This is probably why John's nickname, along with his brother, do you know what it was? A son of thunder. This is probably the story where that originated from. This was a moment in his life when love, godly love, was misapplied. It was misunderstood. But over time, after years of following Jesus, John ends up with a new nickname. Does anybody know what it was? A son of thunder, and he became known as the apostle of love. Why don't we say that just so we can get the word on our tongue this morning. He is the apostle of love. Uh, how, How can we see this? We see it actually all over his letters. John uses the word love 57 times in his gospel. That is more than the other three gospels combined. He wrote the word 46 times in this short little five chapter letter. He wrote, of course, the most famous passage in Scripture itself, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And he eventually figured out that the world that God so loved included those Samaritans. The point is that in John's failure, we see ourselves. Sometimes we are filled with a love that God hates. It's actually the title of this message this morning, The Love That God Hates. Human depravity means that you and I have the ability to love things that God really hates and hate things that God really loves. And human redemption through the work of Christ means that through faith in him and the presence of his spirit, you also have the ability to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Both can be true of us. And yet this godly love is the love that changed John's life. The love of God is the only hope for change in your life too. And that's, I think, where this whole thing, even culturally, needs to start. It needs to start with revival, not out there. It needs to start with revival right inside here, in this room, with our church, with our community, with each one of us. We have a long way to go towards understanding God's love. It sounds like such a simple concept, yet it's so challenging when we hear it through the words of John. And so this letter, it really is profoundly simple, but it's also unbelievably challenging. Unbelievably challenging. And we'll see today that it helps us answer one of the most basic questions of any follower of Jesus. And so we can simply maybe think that we understand the concept that John's talking about, and yet we can quickly realize when we do a true assessment of our heart how far of a gap there truly is between our version of love and Jesus and the way that he demonstrated it in his life. So the question that we're going to be answering today is, how do we love like Jesus? How do we love like Jesus? Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Challenging sentence. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we love like Jesus? Just two simple points this morning. The first is this, embrace who you are in Christ. If you want to know how to love like Jesus Christ in this world and to represent him well in this world, which is all of our calling, then we have to embrace who we are in him. Now, verses 12 through 14, if you like to take notes and just see a little outline of this passage, verses 12 through 14 talk about our identity. They talk about what has what God has done for us. These kinds of statements, if you want to use a fancy kind of seminary word, this is what you pay for when you go to seminary to word, uh, learn words like this. These kinds of statements are called indicatives. Indicatives, that's a grammatical term. An indicative is a statement of fact. Now, verses 15 through 17, they give us a command and then the rationale for that command. John tells us what to do. Commands are called imperatives. So here's a, here's a real you know, thing, a fancy thing to write down. Perhaps it'll sound impressive, but I'll explain it here in a minute. Moral imperatives, moral commands are always connected to redemptive indicatives, redemptive statements of faith. This is something we find throughout the Bible, and it is incredibly important. So let me explain. Typically, parents, I'll just deal with parents. John's talking a lot about familial language here, so we'll use the same. So I'll go to those of you who are parents. Parents go straight to the command, the imperative. So I'll pick on my oldest. She's 14. Her name's Leah. I'll pick on her this morning. It would go something like this. Leah, you didn't tell the truth. Leah, the Bible says don't lie. So do better, be honest. You ever try that as a parent? <laughs> Only the parents just chuckled. Kind of like that awkward chuckle, like, yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Like, clean your room. It's a mess. Take the garbage out. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? It's, we'll talk about something. We'll, we'll bring up the issue. We'll give a command without any context, and we'll just say, be better. Does that strategy ever work? Is that going to work? Will she all of a sudden be like, honest Abe, she'll never lie again. Just because I told her the Bible says so. It's done. If only it was that easy for us to change. If only it was that easy for us to change the behaviors of our children. Why doesn't that work? Because we haven't dealt with the deeper issue. The depravity in us is not just skin deep, it's soul deep. And to work on the soul, the foundational parts of who we are, you have to offer things the soul needs, things like love and relationship. Just telling your flesh to stop it never works. It never works. Willpower 
regardless of what our culture says, willpower eventually proves to be powerless. Willpower eventually proves to be powerless. One pastor put it this way, back into some of those fancy terms, imperatives, commands, divorced from indicative statements of fact of who we are, they become impossibilities. So when you read the Bible, you'll see that before it tells us what to do, the Bible always tells us who we are. Because, if you, uh, because who you believe you are, this is so important, who you believe you are shapes how you end up living. If you believe all the lies that are being said to you from those around you or even from your own depravity, then you will live into those lies. If you believe statements of fact spoken over you by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, then you will live into those statements of truth. Imperatives birthed from indicatives become natural idiosyncrasies. They become part of who we are. Let's think about how it would sound if we started with the statements of fact, with identity, and then moved to command. So here's how it would go. Leah, you didn't tell the truth. That's not who you are. You are my daughter. I love you. Nothing will change that. Be who you are. Do you notice the difference? Do you feel the difference? Is there a difference in, in our motivations when we hear about the statements of who we are and then understand the commands in light of who we are? How do we love like Jesus? We must embrace who we are in Christ. And so who does John say that we are? Well, verse 12, it begins, he calls us little children. You might be thinking, why is he calling them and us by extension a little child? Well, John was the pastor of a church called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor. And his letter was sent to all the churches around that region. They were all considered, really, in many ways, under his spiritual leadership. And so by extension, so are we. At this point, when he writes this letter, he's probably in his 80s, perhaps even in his 90s. And if you've made it to that season of life, then you are allowed to call everyone a little child. You've earned the right. A few years ago, I was with Woodside in Israel, and I took my mom with me. She turned 75 two days ago. And part of the tour took us to the top of cliffs and mountains where we would do some hiking and, and sightseeing and so on. And whenever I'd get close to the edge, uh, it's just... I don't know the way I'm built. I want to go and look over the side. You can't just stand far away from the edge. You need to go up to the edge. It's more exciting. And so whenever I would do that, she, she'd always go, son, get away from that edge. Now I'm with like my church family at the time, a lot of people from Woodside Romeo, a lot of people from Woodside Troy, the people that I'd known, and they, they've only really known me as a pastor. And, and so they're hearing this elderly woman go, Stephen, Stephen, get away from that edge. Son, get away from that edge. Come over here. And they're looking around like, I'm not used to people talking to Pastor Steve like that. And I was thinking, I'm a 40-year-old man. Like, I am a grown man. Why are you talking to me that way? But the truth is, I will always be her little child. It's just true. That's, that's who I am. I'm her son. I'm still her child. So who are we? Through faith in Christ, we are children of God. 
Children of God, John says, everyone who is part of the spiritual heritage of Jesus Christ. And being God's spiritual child, John says here, it's so beautiful, that our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So what does it mean to be a child of God? That your sins are forgiven, forgiven completely, not partially, for his name's sake. So he redeems us, he brings salvation for the sake of his own character, his own reputation, his name's sake. That means our salvation Good news is not based upon our name, our reputation, our character, but on the name, the reputation, and the character of God in flesh on Jesus. And so through Christ, you are known, it says, known by the Father. Now, verse 17 that we read, John says, the world is passing away. But if you notice, to use the expression twice, but the one, he calls God the one from the beginning. And he says, the one from the beginning knows you as his child. So in Christ, we are known by the one who has always been there. We've traded this world's temporary system for his system. This kingdom for that kingdom. These are statements of fact even when we sometimes don't live them out or believe them. We've traded this kingdom This whole kingdom called the world, we've traded it already through faith for that kingdom, human kings for a holy king. We have traded instability for security, decay for resurrection, corruption for righteousness, vengeance for grace, isolation for eternal community. That's what it means to be known by the one who is from the beginning. And John's point here is very simple. It's better to be known by God than it is to be known by the world. Who are we? We are his children. He says some of us here are fathers. That doesn't mean fathers in the physical sense. It doesn't even mean it in the gender affiliation. Uh, He's talking about spiritual fathers, spiritual parents, people who have walked with Jesus for a long time and are grown up in the faith. People who have spiritual offspring. People who have made disciples of Christ, they've helped others grow in Christ through deep interpersonal mentoring. That means they've grown up in their faith. How do you know if you're a grown-up in Christ? You've multiplied your faith into the life of others. That's the litmus test, disciple-making. And so some of us, he says, some of you are fathers, spiritual parents, You've grown up in Christ. You've helped others do the same. And some of you, some of us are young men. That means new to the faith. But through faithful obedience in Christ, he says, we have become overcomers of the evil one. He says, you are strong in Christ, you who are new to the faith, because God's word has taken root in you. And through the word, that is how we overcome the evil one. Psalm 119.11, that's where my mind went. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is through knowing and practicing the word of God that we overcome the evil one, that we overcome temptation and we find victory. So John says, you've been faithful. You've been overcoming the evil one. This is a pep talk from him. You've done it before. He's saying, let's continue to do it. 
Don't stop. Don't turn around. Don't go backwards. There's nothing but death for you there. Continue in faith. Overcome temptation. The great Puritan John Owen put it this way, always be at killing sin in your life. For you may be sure that sin is always killing you. We know exactly what John means when he says you have overcome the evil one. Uh, Overcome sin, overcoming present tense, continuing to overcome the evil one. Because he tells us in chapter 5, in 1 John 5 verse 4, it says, For everyone who has been born of God, so a child of God, overcomes the world. Synonym with overcomes the evil one. And this is the victory. Here it is. Here's what it looks like. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So Christ's work addresses Satan's accusations. God's word addresses our temptations. God's community builds our faith. God's spirit empowers our obedience. So embrace who you are. You are are not a child of the world. You are a child of God. So God doesn't just say, stop it. Did you hear what I said? Stop it. He says time and time again, indicative before imperative, he says, listen, listen, don't live that way. That's not who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. Nothing will ever change that. Be who you are. That's how the Bible motivates righteous obedience. It's not so we can check something off a list and say that we were good enough. It is prompted, it is birthed out of loving relationship. How do we love like Jesus? We embrace who we are in him. And second, The assumption here is that we reject or we don't love what the world has to offer. Look at verse 15 again. Let me read through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the, de- and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So loving the world means setting our affections on what the world is and what it offers. Whatever you love is where your time and your assets go. Let's just think about one example, a simple one. I was so grateful last week, uh, just a few days ago, uh, when our church sends out just a, a weekly report on some basic vitals, some basic things within our church families. And when I saw the response of this particular church family when it came to giving, I couldn't help but praise God for this campus. Uh, This campus went into December uh, $30,000 behind our budgeted need and came out of December after last Sunday, $75,000 to the good, above. Woodside as a whole went into December $600,000 behind our budgeted need, came out of last Sunday, 600,000 to the good. And so you think about that. Yeah, praise God. That's what I did. 
And the truth is, many of you, I'm sure it was the first time in Lake Orion's history that more than $100,000 came in in one week. Just one week. And I know that that's because many of you gave with joy. You gave with sacrifice, with faith. But the truth is, if we're honest, I know there are still many more who call this campus their home who really don't give sacrificially and maybe don't give at all. And giving is part of our discipleship. It's part of setting our hearts on God's kingdom and rejecting the world. And so is our service, and so is our worship, and so is our purity. So loving the world system and loving God at the same time, John's point is that is not possible. It is not possible to love both. Maybe you think this is contradictory. We brought it up earlier. Uh, But why did John write, God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Why did he write that? John is not using the word world in this letter to speak of God's good creation or even the world of people that he was referring to in his gospel that Jesus died for. He's writing about a worldview. He's writing about a system that is hostile to God and it is led by the evil one. John is not telling us to reject every part of the culture because some of it does reflect God's goodness and God's glory and beauty. He is saying, don't love the thoughts or the values or the behaviors that are opposed to God's will and God's word. And he breaks it down into three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. He goes all the way back then to where? to identify these seductions that draw us towards the world. It goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look there briefly. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's desires of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desires of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of possessions. So she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. John's point is simply to say, beware. Beware in this world our appetites, the desires of our flesh, our affections, the desires of our eyes, our ambitions, the pride of possessions constantly seduce us away from God. Think about your appetites desires of the flesh. Are you content in Christ? Does lust have control of your heart? Do you constantly wonder if you have enough? Is your life defined by dissatisfaction? Do you have a scarcity mentality? It's not from the Father, it's from the world. That's what John is saying. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, dress yourself, clothe yourself in him and his gospel. Make no provision for the flesh. Our God is the God of abundance. Is he not generous? Will he not provide everything you need? Is he not enough? Has he not given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? Think about your affections, desires of the eyes, those seductions that come our way from the world. What captures your eyes? Does materialism seduce you? How much time do you spend searching the pages of Amazon, internet shopping, following a bunch of Instagrammers to get you to go and buy, 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 thinking that somehow this will satisfy? 
Are you busy with buying? Are you busy with chasing after whatever it is that captures your eyes? Is that your pursuit? Think about your ambitions, John says, your pride and possessions. Are they focused on the gospel? Are you always needing to control every situation so you can assure the outcome? Whose name are you really trying to build, really? John is challenging. John's gospel hits us hard. It's simple, but it hits hard. And he says, God rejects the, world, the love that the world embraces. God just rejects this type of love. He rejects the love that the world embraces. The world is passing away. It's dying. Don't we see it, friends? Don't you feel it? I mean, it's like things that have been happening around the globe. They're finally hitting home. I feel it. It cannot offer you what you need. It cannot deliver on what it promises. It cannot offer you what lasts. The world offers you a shadow without any substance. That's what it is. It's a shadow without any substance. It's like a cloud. You try to grab hold of it, but right when you try to grab it, there's nothing in your hand. This is the love that God hates. I was telling my children last night, just thinking about this text and thinking about this passage, and I was contemplating it and just saying, every single thing we possess physically in this world will be gone. I mean, think about that. All of it will be gone. So if that's what we're living for, we've put our possessions into the wrong investment. It's the wrong place. In his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, as I close here this morning, John Bunyan talks about Christian. It's a metaphorical book. It's beautifully written about Christian's visit to a town called Vanity Fair. That's where the magazine got its name from. At the fair, you could find all kinds of games and experiences. You could find virtually any kind of merchandise to buy. It was the world at your fingertips. And when Christian and his friend Faithful were asked, what will you buy? Faithful said, we buy the truth, and we see none of it for sale here. This enraged the shopkeepers. They stirred up the people. A mock trial was held and ended with the martyrdom of Faithful. Christian barely survived, sneaked out through the city gate, and continued on his journey to the city of God. I'm afraid too many of us are enamored with the world of Vanity Fair. We're distracted by every new shop and every new plot and every new conspiracy and every change in the wind. And it moves us away from our purpose. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And as I close and as we think about how desperately we need Jesus, I just want to close with the words of Jesus because First John 2, you have to read the whole chapter later. Promise me you will. So mirrors John chapter 15. Let me just read part of it for you. Whoever abides in me, that's where that word is found again, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You want to know your purpose? That's our purpose, to bear fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.